Hello and welcome to What The Lux with me, Fred Moore, and me, Anand Sharma. Together we lead Matter of Form, a design consultancy specialising in brand, digital experience and content. And this is a podcast that calls time on tired ideas of luxury. Alongside industry luminaries and thought leaders, we explore what truly defines category-leading products and services. It gives me great joy for our first What The Lux live episode to have dragged James Lees, our head of strategy, over from his corner of the room, to which I am normally banned, to a local studio around the corner to talk about some of the work we do, some of the things that interest him in strategy, some of the more nuanced examples that excite both of us, the craft of strategy itself, the changing nature of human behaviour, And now we're live on a podcast. I'm going to start by asking him what he actually does. So as the strategy director at Matter of Form, I basically lead the strategy department in all things related to core kind of brand strategy, innovation, and then partnering with our kind of design team on some of the more, I guess, CX-focused outputs. So mapping of customer journeys, like thinking through um, kind of all the interactions and touch points that customers may have with with a brand not just from a marketing point of view but like physical digital touch points all of that sort of stuff i guess like it depends how like deep into my soul you want to look <laughs> okay we'll go we'll go deeper into your soul in a moment when i first met james i uh, attended one of his meetups called groupthink which is an amazing network a uh, global network of great strategists largely mid and junior i think at the time and they'd get these amazing senior strategists to come in often people who we really looked up to, and talk about their craft. And I sort of turned up masquerading as a junior strategist um, with a big question on my mind, really, which was, what is strategy? And then you joined the company, and, you know, basically I'm banned from your general area of the, of the company. So why don't you tell the people listening what you think a good strategy is? You know, strategies like design. There's lots of different types of design, and there's lots of different kind of things that strategy is applied to in different sort of strategic disciplines like the the thing that I always come back to with strategy is always like it's about problem identification what is the actual problem that we're trying to solve and then you know once you've got that down it, it becomes easy to kind of provide a, a point of direction in in terms of how to solve that and where to go next and lots of people kind of fail to or or you know misjudge what their what their problem actually is um, we see that a lot with some some clients that come to us with perhaps a bit more of a kind of a symptomatic brief you know here are the issues that we're facing as a business but you know it's our job to kind of get to the heart of like the why you know what is what is the real problem hiding behind some of those uh, business issues i mean this is something that i say to the consultancy team the whole time which is you know if you've got a headache is the answer chemotherapy or neurofen wow <laughs> okay when they're weapons grade yeah <laughs> so it's a bit dramatic but but you know really you can so easily just jump to the conclusion that you have a headache and assume that the solution is whatever you associate with the problem of a headache but you've really got to get to the root cause of things totally and it, it completely changes what your what your output is i think the hard thing um for us or for some clients as well, is like they feel like they have to come to a lot of agencies or consultancies with like a, a very specific brief of like, I want these things, like I want these outputs. And, you know, I think it takes a lot of maturity with both parties, like ourselves and the, and the client, not to just say, yes, okay, we can deliver all of those things, but um, to kind of look at those and go, is this actually what you 
what you need is this going to solve some of the issues that you have and that's why we've gotten way better at kind of um, look, talking to our clients and getting kind of a bit of an immersion phase scoped first. That's a bit of like a problem identification phase, essentially speaking to stakeholders, perhaps speaking to customers, understanding like the business from different points of view and, and observing what those issues are before then going, we're going to deliver you a brand positioning or, you know, a new website or whatever the kind of deliverables might be. I think I think one of the things that I always admire about great strategy and, and, and our strategy team is, you know, there's some, it's quite overwhelming. There's sometimes so many things to look at, so many opinions, um, so much research, so much insight, so much observation, and sort of turning that into a simple path forwards can be quite intimidating sometimes. Maybe you're just not wired that way. Maybe you just don't find it intimidating. But I sometimes look at this whole breadth, this world of a brand with all of the sort of consumer, you know, research and perspectives and everything. And I just think, my God, I think that's where, you know, getting getting to and sometimes, you know, research will help you to do this and then further research and insight will help you to go one further. But it's like, again, if you've got a clear North Star of like what that brief is, what you're trying to challenge or, or address, then it becomes very easy to filter through all of that information. I think it's like called like the scientific method of inquiry, right? It's like you have a hypothesis and then you look to like seek whether that hypothesis is true in the data. Whereas if you just like look at every piece of data without a sense of perhaps where an answer might be or the problem that you're trying to solve, you do end up drowning in in things. And adjusting against the bias, you know, that's, that's, that's appropriate to the context of where that information comes from, which I think is often missed, especially with more junior strategists I've noticed. You know, you, you've got to basically correct information based on its source. I mean, the, this is a big one. It's like, um, you know, it's probably the hardest thing um, and it's definitely more of like an advanced research kind of skill is being able to accept when your hypothesis or the thing that you're going into that research is like wrong or like it needs to be adjusted because the information that you're finding out is not, you know, congruent with what you're trying to, the, the narrative that you're already kind of formulating in your head from various sources and that like knowing when to pivot and what pieces of data and looking at the sources and understanding kind of which has greater validity in, in that kind of mode when you're trying to get to an answer is like really important for sure. What do you think people tend to just get wrong in strategy? And I guess we've cited one of the one of the things that, that relate to research. But one thing that is really common and um, particularly it's like I think a more of a junior thing perhaps or now I've seen I've seen many kind of seniors get this kind of wrong as well. It's like, OK, one is like trying to and it's kind of cause and effect trying to be the smartest person in the room. So always trying to be the smartest person in the room, like you've got all the answers, you know, I've been here before, I've seen it before, I've done it before, all of that sort of stuff. And then kind of imposing that on your client from a consultancy perspective, like we're there to consult, we're there to provide advice. We're also there to collaborate with our clients and lead them together to to the solution it is real partnership with our with our clients. So like. I think that's one thing that is a bit of a head change for some people from other strategic disciplines when they come to a more consultative practice like ours is knowing that you're not there to just give them the answer. Thanks, done your job. Like really what you're there is to like facilitate a process where you can both get to the answer that you're that A, the business is comfortable with and can commit to. You know, so many strategies, you can come up with a perfect strategy, but if you haven't been, if you haven't involved the client in a kind of a collaborative way to get there together and you're both bought in, you both believe it, um, then no one's going to act on it in the end. 
you know, and strategy without action at the end is kind of useless. So what does innovation mean to you? It's probably a quite a well-worn definition maybe, but it's when you take two ideas that have been disparate or haven't felt comfortable before, perhaps together, or they've just, no one has thought to bring those two kind of concepts together and then pushing them together until you get something new that feels relevant and, and kind of, you know, useful. We talk about innovation in terms of it being kind of both either subtle or like standout. But, you know, in most of those, most of where you're seeing like real innovation, not like invention where you're like coming up with something completely new, but like innovation where you're kind of like improving on the state of things by bringing an idea or concept or technology that hasn't been in your space before together with what you have. That's that's for me where innovation lies. Um, James, as a strategist, you obviously have to put yourself into the sort of heart and mind of the customer, the end user. In our case, often the, the, the high net worth individual. Um, what have you seen in terms of like changes of how we think about the high net worth customer? So first off, I mean, like one, one thing on this, which I, we always have to kind of remind ourselves of and, and, and kind of you know, ourselves, but also sometimes our clients as well. It's like, you know, those three letters or four letters, if you go ultra high net worth, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a person, right? That's a wealth bracket. So one thing that I try always with our, with our clients is to get to more of like a, a psychographic understanding of like, who is that audience? What do they value? You know, what have they been through? Uh, you know, what, what are the things that they, that they feel are important to their life? And, um, you know, we do a lot of research with, what you could, would call, you know, high net worth customers. But what you quickly realize is that they're, they are people. They're just like, you know, in a particular wealth bracket. And they have a lot of the similar kind of concerns, wants, needs, desires as as other as other groups. Like, you know, uh, you might take an age-based classification or, or whatnot. But, you know, it's really, you need to, you, we need to dig into that way more. And that's that's something that we try to get our clients to kind of think about. Um, we're moving from this like material economy to an experience economy, as people love to cite. I think for some generations, maybe that's maybe that's true. But then also, do those generations have potentially access to the wealth to buy some of the things that previous generations did? I think there's a lot there's a lot to kind of unpack there. Really, um, I don't think it's as simple as saying like we're completely swinging the other way. You know, I think the one like there was a I remember sort of five maybe even 10 years ago, everyone was like, let's like subscription model everything, you know? <laughs> it's like, it works for some stuff, but it really doesn't work for others. So it's kind of, I, I know that's a different point to kind of experience versus product and stuff. But the subscription thing is interesting because it's opened up whole new worlds uh, to those who, you know, wouldn't be able to make a capital expenditure that once was required. So it's yeah. broadened out Provide access that, yeah. to in inverted commas, luxury, like a, a, a term that I frankly think is constrictive. But, you know, it, it's, it's changed what people can do and the personas they can choose to inhabit and the people that they can imagine they are in different circumstances. And I think, my personal opinion is, is quite interesting. I think people are acting out different roles in different walks of life and in different moments. Yeah, I think that's, prob I think that's probably true. I mean, it allows people to kind of test things that they're into as well which is interesting versus making like a big uh buyout particularly with some luxury items where you know you're you're, you're far more kind of test and learn or you're trying something out versus just like 
you know, you want to buy a, I think cars are like a particular one, right? It's an obvious one. You know, you're not, you're not necessarily buying outright cash like the Bentley. You're, you're kind of leasing it or you're doing higher purchase. And the future of all of those models is like, you know, sort of subscription based. I think a lot of people get the benefits of that. Like, you know, it's not I own a Bentley. I kind of, I own a Bentley, but I kind of, kind of rent it as well. Like, you know, <laughs> it's that, it's that sort of, uh, Thing it allows them to chop and change. I mean, the people really, the people love that new car smell. I've worked on automotive before, and you know, it's it's really quite attractive to people for two reasons. One, because it, well, three reasons. One, you don't have like a huge cost outlay um, when when you're buying something. Two, um, any responsibility for the thing breaking or anything is usually covered by the the kind of the cost that you're wrapped into. And thirdly, like people like change. People actually like to change stuff. I don't want to be stuck with this hunk of metal, actually. Like in two years' time, I want to change. Well, my life stage might change as well. I might have a kid or something like that. And therefore, you know, that flexibility is really kind of welcomed. Status, James, is a big part of luxury. It's a bit crass. We don't like talking about it, but it's inherent to what drives all of us to some extent. How has status changed, in your opinion, over the last five to ten years? That is perhaps one that does perhaps like differ depending upon generation, like age generation, but also kind of social group. Um, you know, you've probably got different friendship groups that value different things. And so, you know, status is, to be clear, like is pretty much always associated with kind of how you perceive yourself in the, in the realm of how it, how it works in your social dynamic with others, right? So you can, have, of course, there's like intrinsic status like you know people perhaps buy a rolex because it feels like it marks a certain achievement in their life you know going from one job to another or, or or something like that so that's what you call kind of intrinsic an intrinsic benefit to, to that kind of brand but a lot of these things are extrinsic and it's about kind of signaling and i think the only thing that's changed is perhaps like different generations have different attitudes to what is you know, quote unquote, like kind of cool and therefore has status attached to it. A few years ago, right, I remember this as like a little bit of a, you know, soundbite cliche or whatever, but it was like health is wealth, you know. It's that kind of statement. It's like, you know, when you don't have huge stacks of cash, it's really it's about like your body and your image and like all of that stuff. You know, I, uh, what's your opinion on sort of like gaming and investments people make in digital assets and gaming environments to signal? So yeah, I do enjoy gaming. There's obviously, that's the way that the industry has gone is like micro transactions and selling skins and trophies and, and, and special weapons and stuff like that, particularly online to kind of help players. I, th I see it more as like self-expression. I think that's where like status is kind of like attached to perhaps more self-expression in games than than traditional kind of markers of status where it's like look at me i've got the gold skin that was like two thousand pounds like i don't i'm not sure like that level of kind of status really necessarily works hugely well in that arena i think one thing that we often talk to our clients about is the the rewards or the things that we're the most proud to talk about and the things that we attach status to are often things that we have to earn or like work towards and, um, you know, I think there's there's definitely like m things with with within gaming where people are more proud of or, or happy to express um, certain parts of themselves when they've earned that. You know, they've completed the 10,000 hours or they've finished a boss or a level or whatever. 
the ritual, the invested effort, the things that, you know, ultimately create a more meaningful connection between yourself and the brand. This is one thing that we, we try to talk to our clients about a lot is, um, you know, w when we're thinking about those, like what we call brand interactions, um, so those moments where a guest or a customer is interacting with the brand and those kind of signature moments, are there any experiences or moments that you can create for guests or customers where they've had to go through something to kind of get it? It's almost like the cult philosophy, right? It's like what often cults do. You know, they put people through a shared experience, often a grim shared experience. But after having gone through that collectively, you know, whether it's like a bad cult or something like Soul Cycle, people genuinely feel like more bought in to to each other and to that and to that brand and that experience. It's why stuff like the Labo's mixing ritual at the point of sale is just so powerful, right? You've invested a bit of yourself in the process. To build on the point around ritual and rewarding behaviours, let's talk about loyalty because I think loyalty is something many brands get really, really wrong. I'll, I'll caveat this by saying, like, we don't usually do the kind of the big, like, data wonk stuff where we're, you know, processing, like, like all of that kind of information that would lead to kind of points-based outcomes and, like, those things are whole economies in themselves. It's the mechanics that sit behind how loyalty works is one thing. Yeah. But um, the positioning of what loyalty is, the brand of loyalty and what loyalty delivers back to the business is definitely something that, you know, I think is vital. So when we when we talk to our clients about loyalty and, and this point specifically, it's always about um, it's about the high ground. Right. So the high ground in loyalty is always like emotional, irrational loyalty. It's like it's loyalty to a thing above and beyond kind of what perhaps makes sense for a lot of people it's not like transactional based or just behavioral based loyalty like supermarket shopping and stuff like that um it's more like how can we you know take people who are already loyal or perhaps push people into that category of, of loyalty you know like number of visits whatever and keep them engaged or draw them deeper into our world are there experiences that we can create is there access level level of access or products or services that perhaps we could create for that group that keeps them even more kind of locked in or, or, or kind of, you know, espousing the virtues of, of the brand that they already kind of love. But I think where loyalty goes wrong is where it rewards often loyalty. And like when we say loyalty, it's like a word that's often attached to like schemes, you know, loyalty schemes, programs, what rewards programs or whatever. Where those things go wrong is that they reward the wrong behavior. They reward people for doing something they were going to do anyway, right? So they just reward your heavy buyer for, for being a heavy buyer, which they're going to keep doing. And that's a deeply unexciting driver, especially given the fact we're talking about high net worth, you know, a thinly veiled route into another promotional tactic devalues your brand and discourages loyalty in my opinion yeah people sniff this stuff out i've talked to you know high net worth customers for lots of different brands and and they're always when we're presenting like a concept like a new innovative concept to them and getting kind of a bit of feedback they're always like this really for the brand's benefit and not for mine they're probably also the type of customer that's um the most used to people trying to rip them off as well which which breeds that kind of hypercritical kind of way in so that's that's often something that we have to you know work to understand with our clients when we come up with a new concept is like balance 
balance uh, the, the kind of the reward, right? Make sure that the brand's getting out something that they want to do because they're encouraging perhaps a new behavior in the customer that they want, right? So for hospitality, for example, like a common one is we want people to move around the portfolio, right? Why would you want that? Well, you want that because if people just keep going back to the same place, which people often do, we're creatures of habit and we like knowing our GM and we like going to stay at this place, that's fine, but people will at some point get bored or kind of like age out. What you really want is people like loyalty to a larger kind of brand and experience. Well, you want to transfer equity from the joy or the relationship they have with that individual property into the master brand because that creates a more sustainable future. Totally. I mean, that's what builds like a big a big brand versus the individual kind of product brands, you could you could call them. But how, how choices are framed and how people build value references in their mind, I think is really interesting. You know, there's there's an example from from The Economist that's in a sort of behavioral science pop psychology book. I can't remember which one. But when they first launched online, they sold a, a online subscription for about $60 and a print subscription for 120 and everyone picked the online one because it was a lot cheaper, even though this was a version one of the internet and the experience was terrible. When they anchored it with a third option, which was print and online for 120, you know, 95% plus chose print and online because it seemed like great value, you know, compared to just receiving a print version for the same price. Um, I mean, people are so basic in the final moments of conversion and really thinking about value references and anchoring and specific language around how you turn something from it feeling a bit like a promotion into something that's a benefit or something that's a scarcity, you know, it's just often overlooked when it comes to that final transactional moment. What's your pain point with, with what's asked of us? I think luxury is pretty safe. I think it's a pretty safe place. I think there's lots of brands that have been doing well for possibly hundreds of years. And there's a little bit of like, well, we're still doing pretty well. And actually, you know, why do we need to like change or adapt? And, you know, for some of those businesses, they'd be they'd be dead right. And for others, you know, they'd be dead wrong and kind of time will time will tell. But I think like that's one of the frustrations, I guess, for us is like when you're dealing with particularly like heritage brands, they're often scared of losing the audience that they have and they want to keep doing things the way that they've been doing. And I'm not saying like, throw away the ateliers and and you know all of that sort of stuff but i i do think that today there there are opportunities even for those brands to be again like pushing the boat they should be leaders we all know most brand managers stay at a brand for about two years maybe three before moving on like that is like a truism and it's why often like advertising agencies pull their hair out because They've been building a brand through like advertising and comms and all of that sort of stuff. And they've been building an image over time. And then that person leaves. And then it's a new world order every time. And then you're creating a new set of thing, which is which you back to square one, basically, if you start building a new kind of image and stuff. Luxury tend to create markets, right? You know, you you tend to be category leading. You tend to be creating desire for things perhaps people didn't know they wanted or needed. And so I don't think it's a market that's rooted in insight or research. I think it's a market that assumes it knows its customer and it leads its customer to new places, which I think is a great strength and is exciting and, you know, often leads to great craft, R&D, engineering, you know, thought leadership, 
design leadership. Mm. I just feel it's a bit missing. It's like, how do we study the customer and try and find unmet needs that we can base the future of our product around? I, I mean, it's, I know everyone in the industry talks about this, but I think too often insight is confused with observation and too often insight is confused with, with shadow research. Yeah, I think that's fair. Obviously, the world's changed so quickly and... Sometimes the greatest joy we have as a business, I think, is being able to invent new things. It's a very, very different job when you're moving a large enterprise organization from one thing to another. I, I always, I, I know what you used to joke about this, but I think that process is like therapy for the business. You know, I think we're being hired as the shrink. You come in, you listen to the truth of what the business is. You listen to sometimes the ideals that exist in the boardroom. You try and bridge the two, and then you have to take people on a journey and there's a heavy load on the consultancy and strategy teams to make people feel like their voices have been heard and to not lose the essence of what made that business special to begin with. And like we tend to work with businesses that are already quite successful, right? Like, you know, some businesses are focused on turning companies around. You know, I don't think that's really what we do. But occasionally it's like a breath of fresh air when we can invent something new and apply, I think, the learnings from those large organizations to fresh upstart companies or new offerings from existing larger businesses um talk to us about you know like a journey that you've been on doing that i mean two two sort of come to mind i mean one i can't mention the brand but for one of our our kind of larger more global sort of hospitality clients you know getting to work with them on a bit about loyalty and also kind of imagine um perhaps what you do with your like very important guests and the kind of creation of like you know sort of a secret members club and that sort of stuff like that was a really cool project because you're thinking about you know a loyal audience but how do you kind of create something new that's going to you know kind of create new behaviors and get them kind of bought into the brand in an even deeper deeper way um so that 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 was one um but another one that i'm i'm kind of really proud of that we worked on our, our strategy team was for a for a new client client that we called uh odera on one of the, um, it's, it's based on Tinos, which is one of the Cyclades uh, in, in Greece. Yeah, it was just a really interesting project because from start to finish, we were working with a hotel that was being built. So they had an architectural kind of plan, but they didn't have a story. And they came to us looking for, yes, a story, but also then how to bring that story to life in the, in the guest experience because none of that had been sort of mapped yet. And you know, not to go too deep into this case study, but one of the really interesting things about the island of Tinos and our job as really both kind of placemaking and positioning this this new hotel was to understand like the story of the island. And the story of the island, both in history and today, is that it is a center of kind of marble craftsmanship, excellence. Um, you know, you can, people make all kinds of things there, like a bus stop made out of marble. It's incredible. Um and so positioning the hotel around that, you know, one of our, our kind of our proposition was like rediscovering the beauty of a world still made by hand. And that was just a great creative platform that we could then flow into every interaction along the guest experience. And that's the sort of magic that that we often try and help our, our, our clients come up with is like that sort of like creative angle, that platform that we can then infuse into the experience. And with, with this client, um, particularly with Odera, one of our signature standout experiences that we created was something called the Marble Manuscript. 
which is basically a very large slab of marble present within the grounds of the of the hotel within its gardens cut into cross sections and over your time you know visiting some of the marble villages learning about the artisanship of of kind of craftsmanship and that sort of stuff um you were invited and given a tutorial on how to kind of carve marble and you get to leave a kind of a mark or in the grounds of the hotel you know initials or or, or other kind of mark that's meaningful to you after sort of a bit of a tutorial what i loved about that is because it activates that brand idea creates a memory creates something that's genuinely feels different and unique and tied to the place and that and that brand and it feels a signature it's a genuine signature experience um, and you can bet, you know, there's a little bit of behavioral thinking here as well. If you leave, also, if you leave a mark on something, you're going to want to come back and see it again. I, th- I love the small things. Do you know what I mean? I like the Chartrends team. They referenced a little thing that I used in a talk last week, actually, which I loved. It's like in the inside of a Carhartt jacket. There's a little label that says first owner, second owner, third owner. I mean, it's just such a nice way of demonstrating a, a, an ethos of durability but in a really subtle way, I just, I just, I really, I love those little things. Like I really think it's innovation. It's really subtle. It's like there's the little moments that exist often between the initiatives of different departments and how those things tie together. Like what department's responsibility is it to make that label? Is it the brand department? Is it, is it, is it the manufacturer? Is it the garment design? Do you know what I mean? Like where, where does that come from? And that, those are the moments that are lost that really matter because customers go on a journey with brands. There's so many touch points. According to Google, is a quarter of a million micro moments, 45 interactions, quarter of a million micro moments between a customer, a category and a purchase. And, you know, we're going on this journey, we're bombarded messages all day. I mean, there's so many messages all around us the whole time, we're filtering, filtering, filtering. And it's those little things that exist in the gaps in between that I think are very powerful. But well, you did raise an interesting point on this, though, because you were like, who makes that happen? And I think when we when we get in a room with a client and we workshop these kinds of signature moments along a kind of customer uh, map, the reality is that even for a small thing like that, that you have to involve so many different teams to create it. And and that's where I think clients, you know, they recognize like, actually, this is going to be quite, this is, dear agency, thank you for your brilliant idea, but it's actually going to take quite a lot of operational effort. Mm-hmm. And it's on us to understand that and to frame like the value of doing it and who and and to make their lives easy as well like write the brief for like who what teams probably need to be involved yeah. you know how would you go about doing it what other little things do you like at the moment Are there any other little things like that i can't think of any kind of branded examples recently where i was like okay like that has the same impact as quite that the the carhartt example but i did love there was like a silly idea that i don't think ever saw the light of day but it's like just quite a good one on the sort of effort reward thing which was for one of our clients it's more of a resort based model one it was a stupid idea it came out of asking like what would be a terrible idea and but we flipped it and it just it it came out really interesting which was like what if as like a resort brand you had like a just off beach like in out there like like let's say like 200 meters away or 100 meters away or whatever like an anchored like restaurant right but the only way you can get there is if you swim to it (laughs) you know and like there's a little barbecue on there or whatever but like how much sweeter and better is that kind of food going to taste after you kind of swim swim to it and then and then come back it's gonna that's that's how you create a little experience you put someone through something a little bit of effort 
what most concerns you about the world, James, that you're leaving my children? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, like climate change and all of that sort of stuff. But I think, you know, to give a more like a kind of a hairier one is perhaps like, I think it's the social media stuff. I think, to be honest, I think we were fortunate enough to grow up in a in an age where that didn't have the impact on our psyche that it has had and is continuing to have on younger generations. And I think there needs to be some more intelligent way of, of curbing some of that stuff. But I, it's something that I see with a lot of young people, like a lot of anxiety, a lot of kind of, uh, you know, poor mental health. And it's it's often driven by or directly associated with that. So, yeah, that's the thing that I would be worried about, like with the next generation. Oh, that's just quite terrifying, actually. James, if you had to give it a job tomorrow, what would you do? I'd probably go the path not taken. I'd probably explore something like acting or something like that. If I if I uh, wasn't worried about keeping a roof over my head or something, maybe, I don't know. That's always been the one for me is like, yeah, do something that you love that can support lifestyle you want and things. What's the most exciting thing? What's the thing you're most excited about that you think is going to happen in the next five years? I'm probably at a similar life stage to you. Like I'm a bit younger than you. So I've probably got personally a lot of things that are going to happen in the next five years, maybe, with sort of kids and stuff like that, potentially. But uh, in terms of like in the world, what am I most excited about? I don't know. I really hope that we start to make some changes when it comes to like climate crisis and this sort of stuff. It just seems like every time we start to get something good going on that, it gets knocked back. Yeah, look, I'll say a couple of things to this. The first is I wrote a presentation last It was meant to be about AI. And, and innovation and it ended up being a homage to the analog and you know I think there's a bit of awakening up this realization that this fast-paced social clickbait world is not conducive to happiness and look I'm in the business of digital and brand but I still think that it's important to have a balanced life where we take joy and what we we're talking about earlier ritual invested effort and like the craft of things right you know I love I sit on the board of the crafts council you know, and it's it's um I think honing a skill and paying a premium for the blood, sweat and tears that go into learning something, sustaining a craft and making something. Those are things that make me hopeful. And those are things that I think are on the up. Look, you know, record sales are increasing 20 percent year on year. Right. Vinyl factories that were shut down are being reopened. Paperless Post makes more money from paper-based products than it does digital invitations. J.J. Abraham's film Star Wars on film, which I think is funny, and uh, didn't use CGI. He had people dressed up as little monsters. And the board game industry is on the rise, despite the fact that video gaming is the world's biggest media category. For every path of least resistance emerges like something that's valuable and, you know, I guess becomes fetishized to some extent. And on that note... <laughs> Thank you very much for joining, James. It was great to walk over to your desk and drag you off to the studio. Fun and games. Thanks so much for listening. This has been What The Lux. You can find us on socials at Matter of Form and drop us any questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag WhatTheLux. And if you're a luxury brand looking for strategy or design that goes beyond the banal, get in touch via hello at matterofform.com and chat to one of our consultants. And so, until next time. <laughs>